following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. At the end of the previous chapter, chapter 3, the Spirit of God descended upon the Lord Jesus and anointed Him for His ministry. And if you carefully and deliberately read that scene and not rush through it, if you take a pause at the end of the third chapter, the question should come to mind, what now shall Christ do? What will He accomplish now that He's been anointed? Now, what would you expect him to do in the power of the Holy Spirit as God's promised Messiah, as the Savior of the world? Would you expect him then to immediately begin a wildly successful preaching tour? Would you expect him to begin planting communities of worshipers in the Galilean or Judean hinterland? Would you expect him to begin casting out demons and healing the sick in wonderful displays of power. He's going to do all of those things by His Word and Spirit in chapters to come. And if that's your expectation, the opening words of chapter 4 might then come as a surprise. Because the first thing that the Spirit of God does with Christ, the first thing that Christ does in the power and with the power of the Holy Spirit is to go into the uninhabited wilderness for a 40-day fast and for a sparring match, a boxing match, a battle with the great enemy of God and man, the devil. For all we know, in private, with no spectators, no backup. I have just a few observations to make on this text this morning as we continue our study in Matthew. And we must properly frame this narrative of Christ's temptation in the wilderness. It's important to understand how God is bringing it to us in His Word, in Matthew's Gospel. You have to understand that while Christ gives His people an example to follow, and a great hope in His sufficiency to repel the attacks of the devil as well, He, above all else in this passage, goes to war on our behalf. This passage is about the Lord Jesus Christ going to war against his enemy. What we read of here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is a battle report of Christ's conquest against sin and Satan. It's something of what military specialists call a staff ride. When you go to a historic battlefield and someone walks you through not just the strategic importance or the, 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 the big picture view of what happened, but a detailed account of every troop movement that took place on that battlefield. And what we see when we make this stop, when we visit this field of war, is a battlefield littered with the bones of Adam's failure, of Israel's failure, of our failures. And Jesus Christ here plants his banner of love and of holiness and defeats our great enemy of old, where we have failed. 
So as we consider Christ's victory over the devil, we'll look at three things. First, the picture of temptation, then the pattern of resistance, and the power of holiness. And like I said, I just have a few observations, so please stick with me. Notice in verse 1 where it says, And Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That it's not the devil that sets this battlefield. No, but the Spirit of God picks the battlefield of the wilderness. It is God who ordains this trial in the life of Christ. And it is God that ordains the manifold trials and temptations that assail us each and every day in our lives. Are you encountering some kind of difficulty, some kind of problem? It comes from the Lord. He has ordained it. He has set it in your life. And do you think that you're above your Lord, Jesus Christ, in your struggles against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Of course not. Do you think that God will not set you into trials and difficulties for the glory of his name, a fuller revelation of his deliverance and sustaining grace, of protection and renewal, of redemption and victory granted in Jesus Christ, even from the ashes of shameful defeat, the ashes of your sinful record? Of course not. You're not above our Lord. No, God sets us right in the thick of it, just as he did to his Christ here. And on the other hand, We see Jesus led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be what? Tempted by the devil. We might think and grow complacent in our lives, whether you're a believer or unbeliever, thinking the devil is not real or he's not personal or he can't touch you. Do you think that you are above temptation by that great adversary of old who prowls around the earth like a lion seeking someone to devour? Of course not. What Christ has suffered on your behalf you too shall experience in some measure, even as you are called to fill up what is lacking in his suffering. As surely as the devil engaged with Christ on God's chosen field of battle, so too you will face off against the same tempter. And so this account is very instructive for us. Indeed, we need it. Need it to know how to bear up under the burden, but also how to place our trust and a captain who will lead us. Consider Adam, the first man who went before Christ. He faced off against the devil and he failed miserably. His conditions were much more pleasant than Jesus's, whereas Jesus went to war in a wilderness, deprived of food and drink for 40 days, suffering, in fact, from extraordinary hunger. Adam met with his test in a luscious garden filled with unimaginable delights, a full stomach, and a beautiful wife and helpmeet, suitable to his needs at his side, and yet he failed. And what about you? What is your condition? Do you believe that you are impervious to the assaults of the enemy in your current state? If so, then take note. Set a watch over your soul. Seek for the Spirit who anointed Jesus Christ to be with you now in your present need. Consider as well another character in biblical history, the nation of Israel, speaking of them as a character as a whole. This nation was called God's son. God proclaimed over this nation, giving it the pet name Jeduthun, apple of my eye. And that nation faced off against the devil in a wilderness setting with much hunger after miraculous deliverance from Egypt, that land of bondage and slavery and death, which we read about. And the people experienced all the needs that you and I experience. And they grumbled and they complained. They demanded from God. They even rebelled against his servants. They too failed the test. 
When tempted and tried, they crumbled under pressure. But now into this setting, with the battlefield littered with their bones, so to speak, as I said, Christ has come to do better. He's come to do mightily, to do perfectly, gloriously on our behalf against Satan's devices. With Christ taking his stand on the field here in verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. He's in the condition that God ordained for this particular assault. The tempter came. Satan comes against him, and he comes against him in three waves according to God's design. For just as Job was assaulted in two waves by the devil, according to God's permissive will, if we can call it that, so too Jesus withstands the devil now in three waves in this instance. It was the Spirit who led Christ into the wilderness, and it was Christ who then commanded Satan to leave when the trial was complete. And so we see that this whole trial is according to the Father's good pleasure. God is in control of it from beginning to end, indeed from eternity past. For what purpose? What we're told in Matthew chapter 1, for the salvation of mankind. Shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Well, let's look at this temptation and the pattern that it sets for us, because you and I face off against very similar temptation each and every day. In the first wave, Satan appeals to the physical hunger and deprivation of our Lord, that which the people of Israel similarly experienced in the wilderness. And Satan does that in an attempt to lead him into disobedience against God. Because we are to infer from the second verse that Jesus fasted 40 days, that he was supposed to do that. That his father wanted him to do that. And now Satan is saying, you don't need to do that. You have all the power to change these stones to make them into bread, sweeter than any manna which fell from heaven. And so why don't you do that? He's appealing to Christ's physical need. And he does the same today to you and to me. He'll try to ensnare us at the surface level of our physical, financial, or emotional needs to cause us to stumble and to sin for the sake of immediate and fleeting and certainly illicit or sinful gratification or satisfaction of our desires. When something is withheld from you, don't you want it? Don't you desire it? Don't you grow hungry and you'll do whatever it takes to get a hold of it? Well, that's what Satan is trying to exploit here. In the second wave of temptation, then, Satan appeals to the special relationship between Jesus Christ and his God. Look what he says in verse 6. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. So he moves on. He says, okay, Jesus isn't going to do something himself, but he knows his Father will save him. So I'll appeal to that relationship. He goes to the pinnacle of the temple. This is Jesus' Father's house, where the glory of the Lord dwells in fullness. He even cites Psalm 91, Scripture, the Word of God, torn out of context to tempt Jesus to act on sinful presumption. And how do we see him do this today? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are God's people. You are His church. You can do as you please, and He will always save you. He will always forgive you. So it doesn't matter how you live. You see how truth is woven together with temptation and error and evil? 
And so this temptation comes against us today in much the same way as Satan lobbed it at our, as our, at our Savior 2,000 years ago. He says, you are God's special chosen one. You're the apple of his eye. You're a child of his covenant, a member of his church, and so on. And so you can rush headlong into all manner of folly without any real risk. We do this individually. But we also do this as a people when we make rash decisions. This is the tempting charm of a false security born of presumption, of running into foolishness and folly without thinking God, what would you have me do? And then in the third wave of temptation, there in verse 8 and following, Satan lays before Jesus that which rightfully belongs to him. And he tempts Jesus to short-circuit the proper way of achieving all that has been promised to him. He tempts Jesus to commit a secret sin, to win for himself all that could possibly be his in this world. Are there sins that you or I could commit in secret that nobody would ever know about? They'd never find out about. But that could give us some advantage or prize in this world. The one that comes to mind is very simple. Beginning of a new year, we're starting to get all of our financial documents in order. Would anyone know if you cheated on your taxes? If you didn't report that under-the-table income? If you, if you kind of fudged the numbers here and there? Certainly you would get a worldly advantage to that, you would, you would get more money. You'd have to pay less to the government. And that's a very superficial and simple example, but it, it gets at the heart of what Satan's tempting Jesus here. He says, worship me in secret. Nobody's watching, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, and so everyone will see your glory. This is the nature of the third temptation. Well, in all three of these cases, Christ manfully resists temptation. He spurs the devil. He casts him out. And he gives us a pattern of resistance then that we can now consider. So looking at the first temptation, in response to this, Christ casts himself upon the sufficient provision of his Father. Not only does Christ express confidence in the word as sufficiently able to provide him with all he needs to obey God through his experience of hunger, but he actually cites a particular verse, a specific passage to resist the attack of the devil. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he says, I don't need to turn these stones into bread. If God commanded me, if my father commanded me to fast for 40 days, then he will provide for me all that I need through that. And truly, he does. Now, don't mishear me. Boys and girls especially, we're not supposed to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. This was a miraculous fast. There are some who, out of a sense of blind zeal, try to fast for extended periods of time like that, and they do great damage to their bodies. So we're not supposed to do that. But the Lord Jesus was being upheld miraculously by his Father, who anointed him with the Spirit at his baptism for this purpose, to go to the very limits of extremity and desperation physically to show himself victorious over our enemy and sufficient as a Savior. And what he's teaching us here at this moment, and by citing this verse, is that God will provide to you all that you need for faith and godliness. 
from His Word, by His Spirit, uniting it to your heart and shaping you. He will give you the obedience that you need. He will give you the life that you need. He will give you His own merit, which you so desperately need and receive through faith alone. And Jesus shows us the way here in resisting this first temptation to lean upon His Word, even the particulars of it. Now, in response to the second temptation, I've already noted that the devil tries to twist Scripture, wrest it out of context, pull it out, and bring it before Jesus. Okay, you're some kind of Bible scholar. Here's some words of Scripture peppered in. What what are you going to do with that? Well, Jesus confounds the devil's misuse of Scripture. Satan comes against Christ with a citation from Psalm 91 taken out of context, but Jesus shows us that we are to interpret Scripture by and with Scripture. That great hermeneutical principle spelled out in the first chapter of our Westminster Confession of Faith, to read Scripture in light of other Scripture. What he brings from Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you, on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It does look like if Jesus were to throw himself off the the temple peak, then, then God would surely capture him so that he would not strike his foot against a stone. That does seem to line up, doesn't it? But this application, is that really what Psalm 91 is getting at? I think not. And Jesus shows us then how to resist false teaching here, the false teaching which tempts us to sin. He sets the extract from the psalm very carefully and deliberately back into a properly God-honoring context. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He returns back to Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, from the passage which we read. Yes, certainly, God has a care and a concern for his godly ones. Certainly, God wants to protect us and to shield us. But we know from our own experience in the history of the church that this is not always expressed in physical protection or being shielded from persecution or even accidental damage. There was a man down in Winsboro, South Carolina, just a couple of years into his ministry there with small children and a pastor, and he got into a car wreck and he died. These things happen to faithful Christians. Go back to the Word. Go to the book of Job. Job was deprived of his wealth, of his family, of his wife's confidence, of his own physical health, And all of that was by God's design because he was righteous, because he was beloved of God. And so we see here that Jesus says, that's not how the Lord operates. And you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We can follow after God with confidence and in good faith, not putting him to the test with our presumption. To make a very direct application here, I've seen this in churches before. When it comes down to the point for this congregation to become a particular church, as I mentioned earlier when we received members, and to vote then on calling a pastor, you might fall into the same temptation as another church, which I love very much many years ago, and that is to call somebody whose needs far exceed what you're able to support, even with outside support. Well, we hope that's not the case. But we must have wisdom. For you must not test God as the people of Israel did in the wilderness with their grumbling and complaining. Well, then moving on, we must hasten through. In response to the third temptation, Christ finally and fully puts Satan down. The tempter may have bruised Jesus' heels. 
here in our account, but Christ our Savior has crushed his serpentine head. He puts the snake to death. The devil, I imagine it like a great boxing match here. He comes up and he says, all right, these more subtle tricks don't work. I'm just going to go right, boom, right, a full frontal assault. He throws a haymaker right hook, and Jesus puts out his hand and just catches Satan's fist in a glorious block and display of spiritual power and godliness. And he crushes Satan's last advance. Satan, probably in a vision, takes him to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The glories of Rome and Greece, Persia, China and India and Egypt, even Native American kingdoms, all the kingdoms under God's creation. Some that man, and certainly Matthew in writing this, wouldn't have even known about. And he says, worship me and I'll give all this to you. Interestingly, what he uses here when he says worship me is a construction that is only ever used to refer to the worship of God. Give worship, render worship to me. Satan saying, treat me as your God and I'll give you everything. I'm a guitar player. Some of you know that. And there's an apocryphal story in the blues. I've been to the spot in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where supposedly this happened. But there's like three or four places that claim the, the privilege where Robert Johnson, the great blues man, made a deal with the devil down at the crossroads and sold his soul that his music would then be played for all time and he'd win much glory for himself as a blues man. Well, Robert Johnson ends up dying a drunk not too long after that. So though I'm talking about him here in Woodruff, South Carolina, he won some fame for himself. He also won nothing but misery and sadness in his life. Well, that's the trick that Satan's trying to play here. Worship me. Treat me as your God, and I'll give you everything, everything you want, everything that you deserve. Jesus knows that the kingdoms of the world are his already. They're his insofar as he is the Son of God and God the Son. All the earth belongs to him and redounds to his glory. And one day they will be his in another sense, insofar as he is the mediator of the covenant of grace, the true and final Adam, and the faithful Messiah, the head of a church of a perfected and redeemed humanity. And he knows that the one-day situation, it will come about not through worshiping the devil, whatever authority the devil has, but it will come about through suffering, humiliation, rejection by his brothers, death on a cross, persecution of his church through the ages, frustrations to the advance of the gospel, betrayals by friends and servants, and faithful resistance to sin by a people enlivened by his spirit. And he knows there are no shortcuts. And certainly rendering to Satan that which belongs solely to God will not secure for Christ to the nations. And so he does something amazing. He resists the devil. He rejects his offer. And he emerges victorious in faithfulness to God. As I said, he tells the devil off. He says, go, Satan. And Satan goes. Can you follow this pattern of resistance set before you? Can you do as Jesus has done here against this threefold assault? Well, the answer is patently and obviously no. You cannot. 
On our own, we fail to rest on God's promises. We fail to follow God's laws. We fail to love Him as we ought. We fail to rely on His Spirit. We fail to believe in His goodness. We fail to reject the devil's offers. In fact, we capitulate, we succumb, we surrender again and again and again. We fail to maintain any pattern of obedience or godliness. My friends, we are miserable sinners. We are miserable sinners. Each and every one of us, boys and girls, men and women, pastors, church members, elders, deacons, whatever we are, we fail. And we need Christ not only then as a spiritual model, giving us a pattern of resistance, but we also need him as a Savior Messiah, possessing full power of holiness and using it to our advantage. Let's look at that. Now we can consider the power of Christ's holiness in this passage. This is a power born of the Spirit of God himself. Remember, the Spirit came down out of heaven and anointed Christ after his baptism. And anointed him for what purpose? For the purpose of going out into his ministry. In the person of Jesus Christ is united mystically, mysteriously, and, and, and miraculously. Both human and divine natures brought together. And we can't understand it. And this is called the hypostatic union of Christ's divine and human natures. But that doesn't negate the significance, the importance of that which was displayed at the end of chapter 3, when the Spirit comes and anoints Jesus Christ. The special anointing of Christ the Son, the Messiah, by the eternal Spirit of holiness and grace sent by the Father, who proclaimed, "You, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It is the Spirit of God, then, who works and sustains holiness in our temptations as well, who steals our spine and softens our hearts such that we can resist in the hour of trial. And it's our place to rely on this Spirit as He's freely offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's another sense in which the power of holiness is on display in Matthew chapter 4. In this passage, Jesus Himself goes to the front line of our spiritual warfare, he stands in our place as a man, as a true man with a reasonable soul, a physical body. And you can say that the devil then manhandles Jesus as a man. And truly, Jesus experienced that outward temptation which assaults us each and every day. Indeed, think about it. He was tempted and tried more severely than we could ever know because we can't ever experience a 40-day fast. We don't go out into the Judean wilderness and meet face-to-face with the devil. And he never capitulated. He never faltered. And so Satan could push him harder and farther than he could ever push us because we would dissolve in an instant compared to what Jesus sustained. He never folded, never surrendered, never failed. You could say that though he was roughed up, he never slipped up. The dust of the battlefield soiled his garment because he truly was a man. He really was there, but the filth of sin never stained his soul. It couldn't stick. You see, he possesses the power of holiness. This is what makes him a worthy Savior. How can you or I live in this same power of holiness? Well, only by the Spirit of God. But even so, our obedience and our holiness 
to the contrary of many false teachers today, will only ever be partial in this life. It will never be perfect. Our holiness is imperfect. It's faltering. As we read in Romans 7, Paul tells us about our sinful flesh resisting the sanctifying work of the Spirit of grace. There's an irreconcilable warfare described in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13, on sanctification. An irreconcilable warfare which will be resolved only at our death, when we will be made perfectly holy and enter into the full enjoying of God for all eternity. So the question then remains, how can you or I benefit then from the eternal reward which Christ won by the power of holiness? Only through faith in the Son of God, the captain of our salvation, the one who leads us forth to war here in Matthew 4. My friends, look at your champion as he emerges victorious from battle. In verse 11, being ministered to by the angels of glory. Angels came and began to minister to him, to wait upon him. He knows the word better than any of us. He lived by the Spirit in perfect holiness. His love of God is born of a whole heart without fracture or impediment and is wholehearted itself. He alone can boast in truth. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, I have served the Father without defect. I have loved the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my strength. And he's come to lead you, you sinner, in the way and along the way of salvation. As shepherd, as teacher, savior, and as friend. He doesn't come to you as an enemy. The enemy in our passage here is the devil. He comes to you to save, to set you free as liberator and lover of your soul. Does he expect you to live a holy life then? Well, of course he does, yes. But one that is born out of a willing heart, one that is guided by a sound mind, apprehending his teaching, attuned to his grace, receptive of his mercy and forgiveness, aware of, in fact, your constant need of forgiveness and mercy, and acceptance through Christ alone. And in that, then, is the power of holiness that we see here going against the enemy. It's channeled to us through faith, which is itself a gift of his spirit. Faith which leads us then to rest upon him, to trust in him. So my friends, my brothers, my sisters who need a reminder, those who are here visiting who do not yet know him, I plead with you to accept this Jesus as your captain, as your champion, the one who goes before that serpent of old and slays the dragon. For he alone can do it. You can't do it on your own. And he alone promises to do it for you. And he will carry you through. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.